0: Warning, this podcast contains themes that may be unsuitable for pre-teens. Hello, my name is Sam Bartram and this is Hysterical Figures, the podcast that takes a light-hearted, occasionally comedic and hopefully entirely accessible look at significant people from history. This series, we're exploring the life and times of one of history's most iconic rulers, William the Conqueror. Buckle in and join me for the ride. Previously on Hysterical Figures. In 1066, we witnessed a monumental three-way scrap for the English throne. In Yorkshire, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, or the Clash of the Harold's, which is a much better name in my humble opinion, saw Harold Godwinson's English army savagely brutalise Harold Hardrada's Norwegian Vikings. Unfortunately for Harold Godwinson, his army were cream-crackered by the time they got to Sussex to face off with William's Norman army the English got a pasting in Hastings, Harold got an arrow in the eye and William had seemingly seen off all comers in his quest to be king. Or had he? Episode 5. Rebellions, revolts and royal retribution. Ah, there's nothing quite like that feeling when you've just won a battle. The closest thing I can equate it to is finally being served an expensive bottle of sickly sweet alcopops after climbing over several sweaty bodies at a crowded nightclub bar. William was pretty chuffed with his efforts and waited patiently in Hastings for the great and the good of England to finally recognise his rightful status as King of England. Unfortunately for William, no such message came. Instead, after seeing King Harold die in battle, the great and the good of England were now backing a different horse in the shape of the great-nephew of Edward the Confessor, Edgar Etheling, who they hastily installed as king. Basically, the English were so determined to avoid having to bow down before a Frenchman, they pinned their hopes on the last surviving member of the House of Wessex. However, Edgar was only a teenager, and though the English ruling class preferred him to William as their king, if push came to shove, would they be prepared to fight for him? William waited in Hastings for a week his patience had worn extremely thin and he was now properly miffed. He decided enough was enough and moved on to Plan B, which entailed unleashing merry hell on the south-east of England. William and his troops burnt and pillaged their way from village to village, town to town, county to county, taking no mercy on anyone who got in their way. The only resistance they faced was not from opposition forces, but from eating some dodgy food in Dover, where a number of William's men got the shits and died. To be fair, That's what eating the breakfast in a two-star hotel in Dover will do to you. The Normans carried on to London, continuing to leave untold devastation in their wake. Strangely enough, one by one, the earls and landowners that had supported Edgar started to desert like scaredy cats, leaving Edgar with no choice but to concede to William and recognise him as king. Finally, William had done it. He was king of England. By the power of Grayskull. he had done it. William's coronation was to take place on Christmas Day 1066 to conclude what had been a fabulous year for him. Unfortunately, to say that his coronation day didn't quite go to plan is somewhat of an understatement. In fact, if it had been a scene from Naked Gun, it would have been cut out for being too ridiculous. The ceremony took place at Westminster Abbey and started in fairly mundane fashion until the watching audience were asked whether they would accept William as king. The crowd gave a loud shout of approval, Hell yeah! Or the medieval equivalent. This was common practice for an English coronation, but the Norman soldiers outside the church began to panic. What are these English people shouting? What is going on? Do you think there is trouble inside the church? What should we do? Shall we go into the church and check it out? No, let's just panic. Mess some shit up and start burning lots of buildings. Uh, okay. Why? I don't know! Just do it! Ah! And that is exactly what happened. We'll never know quite why the Norman soldiers reacted in this way, but they did. When the crowd inside the church saw and smelt the smoke and realised that virtually the whole of Westminster was on fire, they legged it from the church, some to try and put the fires out and others to see what they could nick from the buildings amidst all the panic. William was left inside the church with only the clergyman carrying out the ceremony for company. The ceremony was concluded in an atmosphere of complete terror, With both William and the clergyman visibly shaking. If the English were unsure about whether they could trust William and the Normans, they would gotten off to a bit of a crappy old start. The suspicion around William grew, as his first action as king was to divide most of the booty stolen from his road trip of terror around South East England between his military leaders, the monasteries of Normandy and his old mate, Pope Alexander II. William then redistributed the lands and the titles of the English who had fought against him at Hastings to his Norman buddies including his half-brother, Odo of Bayer, who was made Earl of Kent. Those who had actively fought against William, including Earls Edwine and Morcar, and even Edgar Etheling, were allowed to keep their land and titles. For the right price, that was. As soon as he got all his housekeeping in order, William buggered off back to Normandy. When he got there, a hero's welcome awaited. Crowds gathered to celebrate William's magnificent victory and shout his name, Picture a triumphant league-winning football team on an open-top bus tour or a boy band making their way through hordes of adoring fans and you've got the vibe. Shouts of, We love you, William! and placards stating, William, give me your shirt! would not have been out of place. There was no question about it. The Normans loved their Willie. And he loved Normandy. In fact, William planned to spend as much time as possible in his beloved Normandy. Although he loved being a king and the kudos that went with it, he wasn't overly keen on England. He planned to let his cronies, including his half-brother Otto, run England while he swanned about Normandy, enjoying the adulation of his fans. When it came to running England, William wanted an easy life. Although he's become known as William the Conqueror, he would have hated that name. He saw himself as a legitimate king and heir to the throne, who is forced to take the crown by force due to the deceit of Harold Godwinson, the swine. As a result of this longing to be legitimised, William wanted to play down any potential changes under the new regime as much as possible. He told Londoners there would be no change to their laws and customs. Oh, and BTW, sorry for burning down Westminster. William hoped that the English and the Normans could peacefully coexist, so he resisted the temptation to murder or imprison swathes of those who had previously fought against him, or whose land had been gifted to William's Norman compadres. The big problem for William was, whilst he was loved in Normandy, he was hated by most of England. Those in London and the South East had just about got their heads around William being king, but those in the extremities of the country, particularly the West Country, the Welsh borders, and northern England, weren't having any of it, as evidenced by this completely imagined conversation in a Yorkshire pub. Hey up, Steve lad! How's thee doing? Up in better me duck. What's matter? It's that bloody King William, isn't it? Who's he bloody think he is? Coming over here with his fancy French wares Taking over land and geeing it to all his fancy French mates. Takes bloody piss, that. If he thinks we're all just going to do what he says, he's got another bloody thing coming. I know what they're saying, Steve, but at least he ain't just killed everyone. He's trying to keep the peace. That's bloody worse. At least you know where you stood with King Canute. If he didn't like you, he'd just bloody finish you off. The way that William's going, he's going to have enemies all over at shop, storing up trouble, I tell thee. Bloody French. Shouldn't be allowed. I blame those bloody Brussels bureaucrats straightening bananas and stuff. Don't even get me started on immigrants. Steve, it's ten sixty-seven. Oh, sorry, Darren. It just boils me blood. Bantle sort you out, lad. What are you drinking? Man's a black sheep. Real ale, not that bloody French lager. Oh, sorry, I'm off again. Cheers, Darren. This was William's problem. He was aiming for something that was probably unachievable. Like it or not, he was a conqueror and was seen by the English as such. Very much like John Lennon and Yoko Ono, the sort of peace he'd hoped for was unrealistic. He'd have been better off killing or locking up his enemies and their whole families. Instead, by sparing them, he was building up a whole bunch of angry, powerful enemies with nothing to lose, and like punch-drunk boxers behind on the judges' scorecards, they were going to come out swinging. Over the next few years, William would have to spend an awful lot longer in England than he wanted to, attempting to quash rebellion after rebellion. You're listening to Rebel Radio 106.7 FM. This is the only chart that counts as we count down the top five rebellions of the early Norman era. In at number five, a cheeky little pop number, the 1067 uprisings in Kent and the Welsh borders. Quashed easily by William's men whilst William was in Normandy, these were no great bother for the Normans. In at number four, it's a little bit country, or West Country to be precise, the 1068 West Country Rebellion, led by King Harold's mother Geitha, and the surviving Godwins. This was a tasty number, crushed by William and his men after laying siege to Exeter. This week's number three, a bit of Northern soul with Edgar, Edwine and Morcar. In 1068 the Triple Threat coordinated a revolt in Northern England and the Midlands to promote Edgar's claim to the throne. This time there was no messing with Big Will, who made rapid progress in crushing this revolt. Edgar fled to Scotland and Edwine and Morcar made peace. Close but no cigar for number two, a monster hit this one. In 1069, William's new Earl of Northumbria, Robert de Commines, was murdered by rebels, starting an uprising in the north. Edgar came back from Scotland for another go and attacked York, getting tetchy now, William kicked butt and devastated York, taking back control. And finally, at number one this week and top of the pops, a return to the charts for the summer of 69. 1069, that is. The Rebels played until the Normans bled, and they knew that it was now or never. Joined by Viking forces led by the King of Denmark, Swine Erisson, Northern Rebels seized York. Though William took York back, the Vikings remained elusive. Thanks for joining me for the completely unofficial rebellion chart. Until next time, look after yourselves and each other. In 1069, having already seen off a number of attempted rebellions, William had a real and genuine threat in the Vikings, assisted and supported by many in the north of England, who decided they'd take a Great Dane over a French connection any day. William had tried to be nice, he really had, but his leniency, or relative leniency, had counted against him. He was sick and tired of having to gallop around here, there and everywhere, putting out fires, literal and metaphorical. There was to be no more Mr Nice Guy. William felt it was time to get bad. Really, really bad. shamode. His first dastardly deed was to cut a deal with the Vikings, agreeing they could stay in England for the winter and cause as much merry hell as they liked along the coast, as long as they left by the spring. Whilst that was all a bit questionable, what followed has to go down as one of the darkest episodes in William's reign, and arguably in English history. William decided that the way to ensure no further rebellions could take place in the North was to raise the whole region to the ground. Buildings, crops, cattle, and all sources of food were burnt to a crisp by William's men, until there was nothing left and no chance of any living thing surviving. The North, the North, the North is on fire. The North, the North, the North is on fire. We don't need no water, let the Northern Rebels burn, burn Northern Rebels, burn! This was over a huge area, hundreds of square miles. Anything north of the Humber was fair game. This was brutal destruction on a scale never been seen before. It's been estimated that over a 100,000 people were killed as a result of this, mainly through starvation those that managed to survive this cull did so by fleeing the region and seeking refuge down south or by resorting to cannibalism as the only things left to eat were each other. This event, known as the Harrying of the North, paints William in a whole new light. Killing enemies in battle is one thing, I mean, we've all been there, right? But the indiscriminate killing of so many men, women and children puts him more in the bracket of a dictator that would stop at nothing to retain his grip on power. All of that being said, It was hard to deny the effectiveness of William's brutal methods. The rebellions came crashing to a halt over the course of 1070, and the Vikings toddled off home to Denmark. Clearly now having cast any hint of morality to one side, William was on a roll. He looted monasteries to pay off any remaining enemies whose peace could be bought for a fee, and thus cemented his position as one king-sized badass mofo who was not to be messed with. All was now peace and tranquillity in England for William, save for one last stand by the remaining Rebels in the unlikely setting of Ely in Cambridgeshire. In 1071, Ely was effectively an island surrounded by water and marshland, which in theory made it harder to attack and easier to defend, as enemies would have to boat, swim or squelch their way to the island before commencing any attack. The Rebel All-Stars who made their way to Ely included the Abbot of Ely, the Bishop of Durham, a kooky local lord called Harrywood, and hundreds of exiles who had made their way from Scotland. Oh, and our old favourite Earl Morcar, His mate Edwin never made it as far as Ely, killed by his own men en route. Sounds a bit like a car journey with my kids, to be honest. William's savvy military skills served him well once again, as he arranged for a number of boats to form a blockade, whilst his men built a causeway over the marshes in order to attack. Being surrounded and unable to escape, all the rebels were eventually persuaded to surrender, having been promised friendship by our will. As we now knew, friendship was no longer William's style. He threw Morcar and Durham into prison for the rest of their lives, and this was when life meant life. All the lesser men were treated to a worse punishment still. Their eyes were gouged out and their hands chopped off. If that's how William treats his friends, probably not an idea to make him an enemy. Only the mystical Heriwood somehow managed to escape and is probably still to this day living somewhere in South America with Lord Lucan, Shergar, Tupac and Glenn Miller. William had now succeeded in complete domination over England, the undisputed heavyweight king of the realm. Next time. With a degree of control over his kingdom, William sets out to exert his authority over his neighbours, with varying degrees of success. There's also more family drama than an episode of EastEnders, when William says, get out of my kingdom, to his eldest son, Robert, and Queen Matilda is forced to pick sides. Finally, like many ex-sportsmen, William lets himself go, puts on some weight, and finally meets a fairly unglamorous demise. All in episode six of Hysterical Figures, William the Conqueror.